This morning in our study of Genesis, we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 30, verse 25, all the way through chapter 31 and verse 16. These are the words of God. And it came to pass, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, and let me go. For you know my service, which I have done for you. And Laban said to him, Please stay, if I have found favor in your eyes. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Then he said, Name me your wages, and I will give it. So Jacob said to him, You know how I have served you, and how your livestock has been with me. For what you had before I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now, when shall I also provide for my own house? So he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flocks today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come when the subject of my wages comes before you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. And Laban said, Oh, that it were according to your word. So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, and every one that had some white in it, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hand of his sons. Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of the almond and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them, and exposed the white which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the streaked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. And he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flock. And it came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived, that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, And from what was our father's, he has acquired all his wealth. And Jacob saw that the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. 
So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field, to this flock, and said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable toward me as before. But the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might, I have served your father. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckle shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. Then the angel of the Lord spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see, all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the, the, the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now, open up this word to us. You've recorded for all these years for the benefits of all your saints. Bring to us, O Lord, the understanding and the benefits and the strength and the encouragement and the perseverance that we need to be your faithful sons and daughters and to stand with you today, to walk with you today, and to know the the shining of your face upon us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, starting in verses 25 and 26, we see that upon Rachel's birth of Joseph, the second seven-year period had run. The first seven years, Jacob had worked for Rachel, but Laban had substituted Leah. Then Jacob received Rachel and had to work another seven years for her. So 14 years altogether, but with the birth of Joseph, that 14-year commitment to work for Laban had run. So Jacob asked for Laban to send him off with his wives and children to his own land. You see, Jacob knows that Laban can effectively prevent him from leaving or at least he can make Jacob leave all by himself if he wants to go. He can make him leave his wives and his children behind. Laban has treated Jacob essentially as a servant, and as a servant, Jacob would have no right to take wives his master had given him, nor children who had come from them. That was the law of the land. So this is all within Laban's power as being the head of the clan, and this is made even stronger by the fact that they are in Haran. They are not uh, 
Uh, Jacob is not with his own family, and he's not a citizen of that land, so he has no right. So in that sense, he really is effectively under Laban's thumb. So Jacob here is seeking Laban's permission and blessing to return home with his wives and children. Now Laban's response to Jacob sounds great on the surface in verses 27 and 28. Please stay if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Unfortunately, Laban's response is not what it seems like on the surface in English. We start with the fact that the words, please stay, are not there in the Hebrew. Now, as we go forward, we're going to see that clearly Laban is going to want Jacob to stay, but it's a mistake to read that back into this response. That's not what he's saying here. He's going to want Jacob to stay because he understands that Jacob has been instrumental in making Laban rich. But Laban is not saying that in this verse. He's not asking him to stay here. The second tip-off we have that these words are not what they seem is the phrase, I have learned by experience. In the Hebrew, that literally says, I have divined referring to the pagan occult practice of divination. The word here used for learned by experience, which is really the word for divination, is the same word that is used in Leviticus 19.26. You shall not practice divination. It's the same word that appears in Genesis 44.15, where Joseph has not practiced divination, but he wants his brothers to think that he has. Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? So this is pagan occult practices for trying to ascertain knowledge. And what we have here is this picture that Laban is not uh, a real worshiper or follower of the one true God. He knows who Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, but he views him as one among the many gods, and Laban is involved in all sorts of pagan practices. And so Laban here, he's not going to grant glory to Yahweh, the God of Jacob. He's not going to take it for granted that he is the particular God who happens to have blessed Jacob and made Laban rich. No, he has ascertained that through divination, through occult pagan practices. So we're going to see Laban's idolatry further confirmed as we go forward because later on, his, highest, his household gods, his household items, are going to be stolen. And he is going to demand uh, Jacob to know where they are. And he's going to search Jacob's caravan. So we see uh, more of the picture of the man Laban and why he is the way he is. And then finally, the point of his statement, name me your wages and I will give it is uh, he is pointing out that Jacob's wages were his wives. He worked seven years for Rachel and received Leah, and then he worked another seven years for Rachel, really. 
And so what he's really saying here is, name me what I owe you, and I will pay it. Your two wives were the deal. That was the wage. So Laban owes him nothing. And that's what Laban is saying here. And so you see that Laban's, uh, the, the exterior, the dripping with respect and, and so forth, if I have found favor in your eyes, it's facetious. Pray tell, what do I owe you? He doesn't owe him anything. That's what he's saying. And that's why we see Jacob responding the way he does in verses 29 through 36. He says, he points out to Laban that yes, Laban bargained for Jacob's services. But the services that Laban bargained for were normal services that you would normally expect even from a very, very competent man. The services that Jacob rendered to Laban were far greater, far beyond any kind of a normal service and anything that Laban could have imagined. Because through Jacob, God made Laban wealthy. He said that your flocks were very small at the beginning. And through Joseph's supervision, God called Laban's flock to explode. That's basically the word in the Hebrew. Your flocks exploded. They became huge. And and he talks about that the Lord's blessing was at Jacob's foot. That's another way of saying that wherever Jacob walked, in other words, we'd say whatever he touched, it was blessed. Whatever he touched turned to gold. And that's how Jacob served uh, Laban. And given that extraordinary fact, he's wanting to know when Jacob's household can receive at least the crumbs that fall off the table. At least that much, at least something. Now Laban knows that what Jacob is saying is true, and he does not want to lose the goose that laid the golden egg. So he says... At this point, he's making express, he wants Jacob to stay, and he asks what wage Jacob wants to continue the serving. Now, in that day, it was common for shepherds to receive a percentage of the flock uh, for their labors. It was very laborious work, and they, it was uh, common for them to receive up to 20% of the flock. But that's not what Jacob asked for, nor does he ask for any sort of normal wage. He says in terms of normal wages, he says, give me nothing. But he says, just give me, in a word, the aberrational animals in the flock, those that are spotted, speckled, uh, the dark sheep, and so forth. And Jacob trusts God to reward his righteousness. Now, What Jacob is really doing here is very similar to what his grandfather Abraham did uh, when he was dealing with the king of Sodom. Abraham, you remember, had taken uh, a number of men and chased down a much greater force from the kings of the east and had freed his nephew Lot and his family and basically all the townsfolk of Sodom, including the king, and had brought them back. And so the king wants to know what he can give 
Abraham uh, in terms of the spoils. And Abraham says, give me nothing. And the reason why is because Abraham does not want the king of Sodom to be able to say he is what made Abraham rich. He's responsible for Abraham's blessedness. So he will receive nothing from him. And it seems like Jacob is doing something very similar here. He doesn't want Laban to ever be able to say that he has made Jacob rich. Jacob is setting this up in a way that if he becomes prosperous, it will be clear that it is the Lord who has done it. So Laban jumps on this deal. He doesn't have to think about it because it is extremely favorable to him and it's extremely unfavorable to Jacob. You see, the vast majority of the sheep uh, in the Middle East in that day were solid white and the vast majority of the goats were solid dark, most of them black. Speckled and spotted or streaked sheep or goats were very rare, as were dark sheeps. And it was even more rare for a solid-colored female, whether sheep or goat, to bear anything but a solid-color offspring, extremely rare. So Laban jumps on this deal, and then he immediately makes his position even better because he immediately lives up to his name by cheating Jacob. The proposal was that Jacob would go through the flock and remove all the spotted and the speckled and, and the dark lambs and so forth and pull them out and they would belong to Jacob. Instead, Laban rushes out with his sons and immediately he pulls out all the spotted, speckled, and the, and the dark sheep and so forth. And then he takes them away three days journey, which would be somewhere between 60 and 75 miles, puts that much distance between all the spotted and the speckled and where Jacob is. In other words, he ruins his ability to really carry out the deal. He improves it, already a very favorable deal, he improves it by cheating. So Jacob, in verses 37 through 43, attempts to overcome these circumstances by engaging in what has sometime been called the maternal impression process. It's a process that's based on the theory that if a female sheep or goat during conception or pregnancy sees some sort of a striking image or sight, that that sight will leave its mark on the offspring. In this case, the vivid sight was the partially stripped uh, poplar almond and chestnut rods that Jacob placed before the sheep and goats, at least the most vigorous of the sheep and goats. Now, this appeared to work, and it made Jacob over time very prosperous while Laban's flocks got smaller and also got weaker, while Jacob's got uh, more numerous and stronger and more vigorous. Now, in truth, there's no scientific evidence to support the maternal impression process, and more important than that, 
we will learn as we go along that it is God who is increasing Jacob while decreasing Laban, and God is going to make that very clear to Jacob as we go forward. Now, this shift in fortunes with Jacob increasing and Laban decreasing uh, ends up resulting in danger because in Laban's mind and in the minds of his sons, Jacob has stolen their flocks, he's stolen their wealth. So the Lord appears to Jacob and tells him to return to the land of his fathers. And he reiterates the promise that he will be with Jacob. That's chapter 31, verse 3. Now at this point, Jacob summons Rachel and Leah out to the fields where he has his flocks. Now this is very unusual. Normally, Jacob would come back to where the tents are, and that's where he would see his wives. They are going to know right away if they're being summoned out to the fields. There is something going on that is critical, and indeed there is. Time and secrecy are of the essence. He does not want to talk to his wives back out uh, in the camp. He wants the secrecy of being out in the field, and besides, they don't have any time. He needs them to all leave immediately. He needs to put as much distance as possible between them and Laban because he knows that Laban is going to be out for blood when he finds out what is happening. He's not going to seek Laban's permission to leave because he knows what the answer is going to be. They need to hit the road they need to move fast. And so this, this plan, what, J- what Jacob realizes, and this is what God's calling him to do, he understands this will only work if Rachel and Leah are with him, heart and soul. And so Jacob explains to them. He just lays out all the facts. He sets out the whole situation in front of them. So that they can see. They need to be on the same page with him. He explains to them that Laban and his son's hostility is not his fault. He did nothing to deserve that hostility. He points out the fact that Rachel and Leah, they already well know how Jacob has served Laban. He has served with all his might and with all his heart. And they know it. They've watched it for uh, close on 20 years at this point. The hostility has risen because Laban has tried to cheat Jacob by constantly changing his wages. But the Lord has protected Jacob. He has now, uh, for, for years it seemed like all of Laban's dirty schemes all worked. And he just got richer and richer. And, and Jacob was taken advantage of more and more. Well, now God is rising up and he's making all of Laban's schemes backfire. They're all blowing up in his face at this point. And he's transferring, in essence, Laban's flock to Jacob. And the language that's used there where it talks about transferring Laban's flock to Jacob, it's actually legal language. It's It's like God is transferring title to these sheep and goats from Laban to Jacob, and he's doing it because it's the right thing to do. He's doing it to make things right. 
That's the language that's there. It's a matter of justice. So the way this worked is that when Laban pulled his normal maneuvers and keeps changing Jacob's wages, uh, when Laban says, well, only the speckled animals are your animals, guess what? All the flocks bear speckled animals. When Laban changes it and goes, no, only the streaked animals are your animals, the flocks start all bearing streaked young. And it is God that is behind that. Then Jacob recounts to Rachel and Leah how the angel of God appeared to him in a dream and showed him how all the rams that mated were streaked, speckled, and spotted because God had seen all that Laban was doing to Jacob. In other words, this was all God's doing. Jacob comes to realize that you can put up all the partially stripped rods and the water troughs that you want. It's really not going to make any difference. Don't be fooled. This was God from start to finish. This is God who is doing this. And then uh, Jacob recounted to Rachel and Leah how God who appeared to him identified himself as the God of Bethel. In other words, the God Yahweh who appeared to him on his way in to Laban's land and Laban's house. He promised to be with Jacob wherever he went, which would mean at Laban's house. Now is the same God who was appearing to him and now commanding him to get out of this land and return to the land of your family. That's in verse 13. Now, when Rachel and Leah hear this, we see another mighty work of the Lord because their response is immediate, it is unified, and it is fueled with righteous anger, not toward Jacob, but toward their father. They point out how their father has not treated them like daughters. Their father has treated them like strangers. They say he sold us and and profited off of us. In other words, he used their commitment in marriage to make money off of Jacob. And they say that he has spent the money that should have been theirs. It seems like they're here referring to a dowry. Now, in that day, you would often have a bride price and a dowry. Uh, The bride price would be uh, the money and goods and items that would be given as gifts from Jacob and his family to Rachel, Leah, and their family. That would be the bride price. But the dowry would be money and goods and items that... uh, Rachel and Leah's father and mother had saved up for them that will go with them. Because a, so a, a wife who had a dowry was called an endowed wife. One who did not have a diary, uh, dowry was a non-endowed uh, wife. The whole purpose of the dowry was so that the woman would have goods and and money and so forth that was hers. Should something ever happen to her husband, if he got killed, for example, or if their husband should mistreat them or abandon them or wrongfully divorce them, they would not be left destitute. 
because they would have that dowry. They would have their own money. So apparently there was a dowry that Laban had for his girls, which he is holding. And what they're saying is he spent it all. He spent it. He ate it up. It's gone. In other words, he stole what was ours. And so what they're saying is he's treated us like strangers, not like daughters. And so they point out then that what God has taken from their father's flocks and then moved to Jacob is really, in fairness, repayment for what Laban had taken from Rachel and Leah in their children, property and money that should have belonged to them. And then they conclude, whatever God has said to you, do it. So they are with Jacob, heart and soul. Now, this is as much of a miracle as God uh, making all the sheep produce in such a way that Jacob's flock is built up and Laban's is diminished. That is a miracle that God works. But also, this Rachel and this Leah and this unity that we see here, we have not seen before. Think about the, uh, the last part of chapter 29 and the first part of chapter 30, which we looked at last week. It was constant warfare between Rachel and Leah. There was animosity, there was jealousy, there was constant competition, constantly trying to outdo the other, all kind of animosity toward Jacob. The household was chaos. The household was turmoil. But now God is rising up on their behalf, and we see what he's doing with all the sheep, and now look at what he's doing within the family. Rachel and Leah realize they are not one another's enemies, nor is Jacob their enemy. They come out, they have no time to think about this. There is no time. They have to decide now. And the thing is, if they had said, oh, we're not sure about this, we want to think it, think it over for a while, that effectively would have killed it. If they had said, well, we don't want to move away from our family, we want to stay as part of our fathered clan, all they have to do is go say something to their father, and this whole thing is over. If Jacob's leaving, he's leaving all by himself. The results that we have here is the only way this plan works. And you look at Rachel and Leah, they are united together 100%. They are united with Jacob 100%, and they're united with the Lord and what he is doing 100%. So it's interesting when we look at the entire 20 years that Jacob spent with Laban. And remember, on his way into Laban, God appeared to Jacob at Bethel and said, I am with you wherever you go. And yet, for the first 14 years of that time with Laban, it could have easily seemed like to Jacob as well as Rachel and Leah that God was not with him. It seemed like he wasn't. Because Laban keeps doing whatever he wants. He has all of these schemes where he's constantly taking advantage of everybody. And he just keeps getting richer and richer and richer. And others are more and more oppressed. 
Where is the God who promised to be with Jacob? But after 14 years, and when Jacob's household seems like it is complete disaster area, suddenly God arises. He rises up. He rises up on behalf of Jacob, on behalf of Rachel, and on behalf of Leah. And how quickly things begin to change. Suddenly, very rapidly, over the next six years, God builds up Jacob. And it is God. Jacob is not stealing Laban's flocks. And he's not come up with some kind of new special breeding technique that does wonders. None of that stuff works. But God is transferring title from Laban's sheep and making them Jacob's sheep. He is diminishing Laban because he's been built up the wrong way and he is now building up Jacob. He's also bringing peace about between Rachel and Leah. And he's opening their eyes about how Jacob is the faithful man and their father is the unfaithful, unrighteous man. Now, you know, as we go through the Christian life, we're called to walk with God through various trials, hardships, and afflictions. And the thing is, we can make it through just about anything as long as it's short. We can get through just about any trial as long as it's short. It's when the trial drags out. It's when it protracts. It's when it goes on. It's when it just won't stop. And it goes on and on and on. That's when trials get really hard. That's when they really begin to wear on us. And our hands began to hang down. As Hebrews 12 says... We become weary in the faith. We become discouraged in the faith. And yet we see God doing that with his people. Part of the hardship is not just the hardship. It is the fact that the hardship endures. And God is nowhere to be found, apparently. That is what makes them so difficult. And yet we see God doing this with his people over and over again in scripture we we're going to see when we get to the book of exodus all of jacob's descendants are going to go to egypt due to famine and when they first get to egypt everything is going to seem great because joseph is there there's a good pharaoh there they're given the best of the land just like laban at first welcomed jacob as family But over time, everything's going to shift. And the Egyptian pharaoh is going to to be adverse to them and begin to take advantage to them and begin to oppress them over time. And that is going to last a long time. And the effect on the people is going to call many of the people to get weary, to get discouraged. To feel like, well, we don't know where God went, but quite clearly he is not here with us. You will start to have a lot of idolatry and that kind of thing appearing among the people because they're weary and discouraged. But God is in fact with them. He does not forget them. And then he's going to call Moses to come and deliver them. 
And think about Moses. Moses knew from an early age that he was meant to be the deliverer. But when he starts trying to deliver, his own people, the Israelites, reject him. And so he has to flee out into the desert because Pharaoh is going to kill him because he intervened to protect one of the Israelites. And the Israelites aren't even taking his side on it. So Moses just has to abandon this whole dream of being the deliverer. He's out in the desert for many, many years. He's just a shepherd keeping his father-in-law's sheep out there in the desert. It is only then, after all that, that God appears and says, you're the deliverer. I'm sending you to bring my people out. I will be with you. These long periods of time where God keeps building, uh, uh, requiring of his people, not just faith, but faith over the long haul, faith persevering, faith being steadfast, faith bearing up no matter what. That's what he keeps requiring of his people. And this idea of endurance we start to see is a very important concept in the Bible. There's a lot of qualities that God requires of us that he is working to form within us. Think of the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and humility and self-control, those that's like a beautiful bouquet of flowers. We can get excited about those qualities. But when you bring up the, the quality of perseverance or endurance or steadfastness, that seems very drab behind these other ones. It doesn't seem very interesting. It doesn't seem like something that we would be that interested in. And yet we see, keep seeing in Scripture that steadfastness or perseverance, sometimes you see it called patience, is the indispensable quality without which none of the other qualities can really get a foothold in our lives and grow to be what they should be. It is the steadfastness that has to characterize every one of the other qualities. What good is love if it doesn't persevere? What good is peace or joy or patience if they don't last? What good is kindness and goodness and self-control if they don't endure? That's the point. Perseverance, this one that seems drab and uninteresting, turns out to be the secret ingredient that needs to go with everything else. And we see the same thing being applied to God's perfect son, Jesus. Hebrews 12, in fact, the whole book of Hebrews at various points, chapter 2, chapter 5, and then, uh, and then really in chapter 12, makes the point that though Jesus was sinless, Yet he had to persevere. He had to face hardship and affliction and he had to endure and he had to persevere not to get rid of sin. He didn't have any sin, but he needed to do all these things to become all he could be, to become all that it means to be the son of God. In other words, to be qualified to go to the cross for us. He had to fully be everything that it means to be the son of God. 
And what Hebrews says is look to Jesus. Don't get weary. Don't get discouraged. Don't let your hands drag. When trials draw out, look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's another thing that can kind of confuse us. How is Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith? We think, well, Jesus didn't need faith. And we need to correct that. Jesus did not need faith in a Savior because he didn't need a Savior. And besides that, he was the Savior. But that's not the same thing as saying Jesus didn't need faith because he did need faith in his Father and in his Father's promises. Because it is the Father who promised that if Jesus became one of us, lived the life we should have lived, offered himself on the cross for our sins, and went into the grave willingly, like Jesus said, nobody can take my life from me, I lay it down of myself. If the Son, if Jesus would do that, what did the Father promise? that he would bring Jesus out of the grave in a way that no one had ever seen before. Not resuscitation, that's going back out the same way you came in. No, it's resurrection. It's bursting out the other side of the grave in new glorified human life that no one had ever seen before or ever thought was possible that God would raise him from the dead in that glorified life, that he would sit him on his throne in heaven and give to him all the nations of the earth and the very ends of the earth as his possession and all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus very definitely needed faith in his Father and in his Father's promises. It was the joy of those promises, Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. But for the joy of the Father's promises, he endured the cross and now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the next point that Hebrews 12 makes is that we walk the same path. Now, we're not the Savior like he is. Others' salvation is not riding on our backs. We're not going to the cross for anybody. But we still are required to walk the same path of faith. And if it was required for the flawless man, the perfect man, to walk the path of enduring under hardship in order to stand up to his full height and be all that it means to be the Son of God, how much more is that true of us who have sins? And all kinds of habits and attitudes and so forth that need to be worked out of us. It says in Hebrews 12 that God trains every one of his children. If you, if you don't get training from the Lord, and the word for training there, it's the word padea, it means instruction and, and rigor and all the various things. The best image we have today is like Navy SEAL training. God says every one of his children receives Navy SEAL spiritual training. And if you don't don't receive that training, you're not his child. And it says none of this training is fun in the moment. Not a single bit of it. If it's fun in the moment, it's not training. 
It's hard in the moment. It is only on the other side when we have been trained that then we experience what it calls the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Nathan earlier for our gospel word read from Romans 5. And it is there that says, In Christ we rejoice in the hope of glory of God, and we also rejoice in tribulations, not because they're fun, but because they are good, because God uses tribulation to produce perseverance in us. The word for perseverance there is a very interesting word. It means to stand still with the idea. It's a battle scene scenario. It means to stand still and remain behind. The the idea is everybody else is breaking and running. The one who perseveres is the one who stands still and remains behind and does not run. That's the picture of perseverance. He says we glory in tribulations because we know that God uses tribulation to produce perseverance in us And it is perseverance that perfects all the rest of the character traits and results in hope. In other words, as we see God's work over the long haul in us, that actually builds our hope for the glory that God sets before us because we see what he's doing in us. So this idea of patience... And perseverance is what you will often see in the Bible but in the phrase waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord. You'll see that, for example, Psalm 37, verse 9. Those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. Wait sounds very passive to us. It's not passive in the Bible. Waiting on the Lord is a very active thing. Waiting on the Lord means you're holding on to God. You're clinging. You're standing. You're persevering. Waiting on the Lord is a very active concept in the Bible. And that's what genuine faith does. It waits on the Lord and it clings to the Lord. Deuteronomy 30 verse 20. Cling to him because he is your life. It is that waiting on the Lord, that clinging to the Lord that allows us to know God more and more, to experience his favor more and more and his power more and more, and to receive foretastes of glory even now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.